0: Hi, I'm Shoma Chaudhwee. Thanks for watching Inquiry. As Parliament begins and laws are passed and repealed without adequate discussion, some crucial questions arise. Can any government, no matter how large a mandate, design good policy for a country as complex as India, without deep democratic consultation and a respect for federalism? So what are the lessons for the center from the debacle of the farm laws? To discuss these issues, I have a very erudite and interesting guest on the show today, Mr. PTR Thyagarajan. Mr. Thyagarajan is the finance minister of Tamil Nadu, one of India's most prosperous states. And in fact, the world speaks of South Asian tiger economies, but Tamil Nadu is a South Indian tiger economy in its own right. Mr. Thyagrajan comes from a veteran political family He has a chemical engineering degree from NIT in Trichy and an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he brings an interesting mix of these professional skills along with a grooming in the political Dravidian movement to the job. It'll be interesting to hear his views on all of this as well as his insights on the Tamil Nadu model of growth. He's an articulate and informed voice in India's public life and one looks forward to his perspectives. Thank you very much for joining me on the show, Mr. Thyagrajan.
1: Very kind of you to say thank you for having me.
0: So, Mr. Tiagrajan, you know, Parliament has started today and the hot focus is on the farm laws being repealed. And there are a lot of lessons to be drawn from that in terms of democratic process, federalism, a lot of issues that you've been raising. So I want your views on that. But before that, I wanted to draw the audience's attention to Tamil Nadu. Uh, you know, which is often not in national consciousness. And I was actually surprised by some of the numbers myself. It's a $300 billion econ- economy, which is the size of Hong Kong, Singapore, UAE. It's gone from 80 billion to 300 billion in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, the new Niti Aayog uh, report came out on multidimensional poverty index. And Tamil Nadu is astonishing. It's just 4.9% Uh, of its population is considered poor and you draw just 3.5% of your revenues from from the center and the rest is all self-generated. So those are astonishing figures, you know, and uh, the chief minister, Mr. Stalin, just said that you're targeting reaching a 1 trillion economy by 2030, which would make it one of the largest economies in the world, you know. So as finance minister, what do you think is going to drive this uh, you know growth story for Tamil Nadu and what do you think is going to hold it back or what are its challenges?
1: If you do the, the uh, long-term things right, if you do the fundamental things right then the long-term benefits of that are very uh, clearly visible and if you don't do them right then the long-term consequences of that are also very constraining. So in the case of Tamil Nadu the thing that we did right going back to 1920 December when the first Justice Party government was elected under Diarchy, was to focus on inclusive growth. I mean, that wasn't the actual words they used. They used social justice, you know, reservation, uh, women's rights, and the right to vote, and the right to education. Uh, to education as a means of progress. So compulsory primary education, elementary education in the year 1921 for boys and girls. So if you do the basic things right, then over the long term, you develop a sustainable advantage. Where we really saw the growth was after the 1990 kind of reforms. And you see, if you had the infrastructure, when the reforms came, if you already had relatively universal education, if you already had a universal noon meal scheme, if you already had a human development index or a medical uh, kind of access index or a number of doctors per thousand, if that was already in a good place, then it became a kind of virtuous cycle because you were able to attract investment. You were able to get a lot of startup companies, a lot of foreign capital, etc. And Chennai, for example, became both at IT level and also at auto manufacturing level, a big hub. And, you know, so I think the good things for Tamil Nadu have been that some of the foundation was laid right back going 100 years ago. So I'll just give you two examples. Uh, The temples were nationalized by the Justice Party after two attempts in the 1920s, but it was Rajaji and then eventually my grand-uncle you know, as HRNC minister, who said uh, Dalit Temple Entry Act, everybody can go. And my grand-uncle Bakhto brought in the uh, guideline that temples could be, I mean archanais could be said in Tamil, the prayers should be recited in Tamil. So we democratized religion across all governments and across all parties. The same way if you take the noon meal uh, scheme or free food at school, it was first started in Madras Corporation by the Justice Party Government 21. And then it just kept expanding from there. And uh, when Thiru Kamaraj came as the chief minister of the Congress, he said, why should we only uh, feed some children? We'll feed all children, irrespective of which school, but tested for means, all poor children. And then when Thiru MGR came, he said, why should we only feed children? Everybody who comes to a government school gets free food. And then when our Taliban came, he said, yes, but not just any food, uh, eggs, you know, five times, five eggs a week, protein. And so the continuity of such basic good policies on empowerment of women, uh, compulsory education, equal access, uh, women first got the right to vote in Madras presidency before other places. Then they got the right to uh, kind of self-respect marriages without having to go through all of this rigmarole and certification. And then they got equal right to property and so forth. So, you know, it has been continued. So, you know, as you know, if you look around the world, one of the basic indicators of of society's progress is the freedom and the rights given to women. So if you take uh, Tamil Nadu, for example, almost 100%, at least pre-COVID, almost 100% of the girls below the age of 18 were in school wow. and that's not true around most of the country right and so i think we got the basic things right but so in 2006 and 2011 when our DMP government was in place we had a cagr growth rate of 10.15 uh, percent real growth rate right before i mean excluding the effects of inflation so with the effects of inflation something like 14 15 16 percent that is what you need to do to double, triple, et cetera. To get from 300 billion to a trillion, we need to see about 13.2% nominal growth, growth rate, including the effects of inflation. That just translates to a real growth rate of about 7, 8, 9%. We can do that. Now you say, does that mean everything is hunky-dory? The answer is no. You know, The last 10 years, and particularly the last seven years, ever since the troubles of Ms. and eventually her passing, uh, the rest of her party, which was otherwise designed to be kind of relatively uh, obedient kind of executors uh, were without a kind of strategic direction or a real kind of vision. And so, you know, our debts have gotten very big between 2014 and now they've gone up about three times. Our debt to GDP, which was 116, 17, 18%, and now about 26, 27, 28%. Our interest to revenue, which was as low as 11%, and even in Ms. General's first time, 2013, 14, is now close to 20% the state's revenues have plummeted like a rock. So the state's own revenues have dropped by about a third, about almost 40%. And even pre-COVID, we were only seeing about seven, seven and a half percent of GSDP. And post-COVID, that number came down to something like six or 5.8. So you know, in my assessment, I've made the point that if we fix our basic problems in terms of getting our numbers right uh, and, our, and our revenue right and do it somewhat professionally, then, uh, you know, we can get back on the path we used to be.
0: So, you know, I uh we'll move away a little bit to the national economy and, and you know, this whole issue of federalism that you've been speaking about. But just very briefly, now you've, you've prepared a white paper and you want to drive this vision. Uh, what do you think is going to bring the revenue back up to the percentages you want? What is the growth path going to be for Tamil Nadu?
1: Yeah, so I I break that into two different parts, right? The first is the state's own revenue, uh, and the second is uh, the growth. uh, uh, uh. The first part, I think, as far as the state's own revenues are concerned, the three biggest ways we can fundamentally improve our revenues. One is in uh, mining. You know, we get a pittance. There's so much fraud, so much fraud that happens, that we consider ourselves one of the eight or nine top mineral rich states in India. And I think we report something like less than thousand crores a year revenue out of uh, you know as you say a three uh, three hundred billion dollar economy, or in rupee terms, out of twenty one point something trillion rupee economy. Uh, the second is alcohol. Right, there is huge malfeasance in alcohol. Uh, the kind of rumor is that if one bottle is sold with the stamp of excise, then another one is sold without, and there is massive fraud going on there. And the third, by far, is in compliance with GST and, uh, and, and other taxes. Uh, huge amounts of fraud are going. My colleague, the Commercial Tax and Registration Minister, uh, who is uh, coincidentally from Madurai, he's on record at many places enough so to actually come forward and pay the tax. Multiple CAG reports have pointed out over the last three, four years, car revenues have been between 55 and 75,000 crores less a year, each year. Right now, that would basically wipe out our entire revenue deficit, and it would fundamentally transform the nature of our uh, economy. So that's the thing we need to fix. I think it's it's eminently doable. Uh, We've started putting systems in place. We are fundamentally going to change the. uh, You know, would you believe there's no point of sale terminals in the in the liquor shops in, in in Tamil Nadu today? I mean, somebody tells us what they sold, and we say okay. So we need to fundamentally transform these things.
0: Right. So that's you, you're fixing the gaps in the system in terms of being forward-looking? Is it yeah, so technology the, or services? You're a Very
1: good point. Not just, not just technology. I think uh, we are in the planning department, which is also one of my departments, we are going to sit and work out a path to one trillion. You know, uh, Not all sectors will be equally attractive at every point of the next 10 years. So let's come up with a kind of framework and say what rate of growth should we expect in which sector at what period of time such that the aggregate transformation goes to one trillion now let me let me give you a little more detail at the risk of losing your viewers but tamil nadu's role in national manufacturing has come down dramatically right in 2011 we used to even even 8 9 10 we used to be about 11% of the country's manufacturing by the last survey i saw in 16 or 17 we were only about 9% And so, you know, uh, and our economy used to be about 20, 25 percent industrial and mining. And that has dropped to sub 20 percent. And it's the real estate and service sectors that have taken up. Now, those are never going to be substitutes that provide equal quality jobs with steady state benefits like a pension and an EPF and an ESI medical coverage and so forth. So the nature of our economy has shifted. We, you know, not not every rupee is the same. Not every dollar is the same something you get out of, you know, low paying, uh, high rent seeking, high complexity uh, industries uh, is not the same as transparent, like chip manufacturing or, you know, um, ITES, where it's much harder to do either rent seeking or fake accounting. That's pretty good.
0: So just before we move away from this now, uh, you know, the fact that you're sitting on top, top of such a tiger economy, you know, regardless of all the Difficulties that you've just mapped. Uh, do you feel that enabled? Like, do you feel that you're the finance minister of one of the world's potentially largest economies?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I thought about it that way, but let me uh, let me say that, uh, and, and this is something that is quite unique. I am actually 26th out of 34 ministers in the protocol because we are a very kind of protocol-following party. So it's based on when you were first an MLA, when you were first a minister. Uh, how old are you in the party, etc. So out of 34 ministers, I'm 26. It is unprecedented for a 26th-ranked minister to have uh, not just finance, uh, finance and pensions go with finance, so that's not a big d- distinction, but also what used to be called personnel and administrative reforms, which is now called human resources management. That is the human resource of the government. And that is a hugely important, You know, as you know, people are even more important than money. And that department includes the Tamil Nadu Public Service Commission for recruitment, the Lokayukta, the DVAC, the Right to Information Commission, all the training institutes, all of that. And in most states, the chief ministers hold on to that portfolio. So between those three and the planning and development, which includes the Tamil Nadu Planning Commission, uh, you know, it's unprecedented that any chief minister would give a junior minister, first-time minister, second-term MLA, this kind of responsibility. Uh, so i you know I, I feel the the weight of the responsibility more than I feel any elation or uh, any kind of joy at it, but um, I am convinced that so many things are so profoundly wrong that we have so much headroom you know and and of course, some of this will boil down to whether we have the political will right The system is only partially broken by inertia, some of it is broken by intent, somebody benefits from keeping the system the way it is. And so we're going to have to overcome that. But the basis for this, as the chief minister said, I'll just give you three statements the chief minister said at different points. One, in our first meeting with the global economic advisors, he said, uh, we have very high ambitions for inclusive growth. And we understand these ambitions cannot be achieved just by marginal reform. You know, we want to have a radical reform and we stand ready to do it. And that's the expression of political will. Uh, The second is, he says, we want a society where no one is left behind and no district is left behind. We want equitable growth. That is our ambition. Uh, It's much harder to do, but it's much more sustainable in the long term. The third, about uh, two days ago at a CII conference, he said, as far as we are concerned, every department is the IT department. You know, we need the IT infrastructure. We need to know what's happening. We need to track what's happening. We need to be able to pull it up on our screens. And therefore, it is, you know, the the old adage that sunlight is the best disinfectant. If you have access to information, you're able to control. I'm not saying you can make it 100% perfect. You know, in no democracy can you separate money and politics, at least to to the best of my knowledge. But there's kind of a a contained system, you know, mostly on the books like the U.S. or to some extent other countries. That's kind of largely off the books or increasingly off the books like some other countries. And then we have places like India where it's completely set up to enable quid pro quos through things like electoral bonds. So, you know, uh, you you can't separate it, but you can kind of control it and make it more obvious and transparent. And that will help a lot.
0: Right. And, you know, you yourself come from a banking uh, background and wealth management. You were also with Lehman Brothers with, with the with um, uh, standard chartered in singapore so you know you're you're an absolute capitalist though you've grown up uh, in a in a socialist political family so you know it's interesting that you were laying so much of this uh, at the feet of the fact that there's been inclusive growth there's been emphasis on education and health and you know gender equity um so as a committed capitalist uh, do you feel that all of these things should be privatized, which is the movement that's going on in the rest of the country? Or do you think that these are areas in which the government should continue to play a big role?
1: You know, of course, I'm a capitalist in the sense I earned my living and made my money in a relatively capitalist system. Of course, my legacy and uh, and my family and my party and the religion movement are socialist. But really, uh, the fundamental principles of both socialism and capitalism, if exercised properly, are not that far apart. I mean, let's go to the father of the original capitalist kind of Adam Smith, you know, Wealth of Nations. Yes, there should be an invisible hand. Yes, every man should work in his own interest. Only that will get the best outcome. You shouldn't have over-regulation, etc. But it is inherent in that model that you should have a level playing field because uh, a Just and compassionate society also gives you good growth. It's not, it's not a contradiction. It is the right combination. And that's all over the world. Right? So it's not so much whether it's capitalism or socialism. It's is there a gap between the intent and the uh, progress? For example, the whole model of a Marx or a Piketty about you know, increasing returns to capital, reducing returns to labor, and the system breaks down. The antidote to that was supposed to be democracy. It was supposed to be you give one man, one vote instead of in a company where it's based on the number of shares you have, and therefore you can speed the outcome. And one man, one vote was supposed to give you a level playing field. And therefore, you will get the best of animal spirits outcome plus a level playing field and a compassionate government. And these can fit. Now, if we go back to your other question, I think there's a clear role for government. There's a clear role for private enterprise. And there's a clear role for kind of the quasi. And I'm not even going to call them state-owned enterprises because I'll put that into the government. But if you look at the Justice Party philosophy, they said, you know, things like roads and water and dams and bridges and hospitals and government hospitals or medical colleges should be run by the government. Entrepreneurs will create better jobs, exports, trade, etc. And the government can't do that job that well. And then there's this middle factor, which is insurance, farm, housing, where the cooperative sector, where it is you know, not a for-profit society, but a mutual society, can actually play a big role. So this mixed model of the economy has been our value system from the beginning. It remains so. Now, there's a slight variation. Because of the nature of global capital markets, because of the excess liquidity over the last few years, I mean, between global financial crisis and now there's probably $4 trillion of excess liquidity printed by all the central banks in the advanced countries, but they can't control where the money goes, so it's going all over the world. In fact, much of it is coming to buy assets in emerging markets and, and uh, semi-developed countries. So give you, I'll give you an example. In Tamil Nadu, you know we have this uh, kind of <laughs> very ironic example where we are in the middle of uh, acquiring more land from the public to hand it over to the government of um, uh, India for expansion of Trichy Airport. While we're doing it, the union government is in the middle of privatizing that airport to Adani. Now I say, are we facilitators, right? are we by taking land from uh, private individuals, giving it for free to the union government so that they can sell it for a song to a commercial operator right? or, or lease it for an extended period of time. So there's an inherent contradiction in a lot of the things that the union government says and what it does. And so from my perspective, I have been uh, talking to the Chief Minister just as a general philosophy that the state must identify kind of category A, category B, category C capital projects. Category A projects are things like uh, hospitals or classrooms or toilets in schools, where we never expect to make a rupee of revenue from this. This should be built 100% with government money as it is today. Category B is water systems, metro. Uh, bridges, you know, ports, airports, these we should do as joint ventures between us and people who bring both the capital and the expertise, and will enforce the discipline that debt financing gives to ensure that the post-construction uh, monetization is not again impacted by uh, rent seeking. Right? And then there are things which, you know, we simply don't have kind of. Uh, 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 enough uh, talent or enough uh, specialization and we should find partners who can go 50-50 or you know 20 30 i mean 20 80 or 30 70 or 70 30 and we should look at sub components or you know different components for example some other states have done a lot of innovation in other industries like elect- uh, like electricity supply so i think that you, we have to have a philosophy of what are the things that we do ourselves 100%. What are the things we do largely with external money? And I think that can fundamentally change the rate and pace of investment as well. If you compare Gujarat and Tamil Nadu on a per capita income basis or on a kind of uh, you know rate of growth over the last few years basis, they do better than us. Uh, it, it masks a lot of inequity, right? A lot of Gujarat's growth over the last few years has come from massive projects like the Jamnagar distillery or massive increase in the diamond industry and so forth, where a few people have made a lot of money and most people are at very low paying wages. So there is such a thing as the Tamil Nadu model or the Dravidian model. Because if you start with inclusive growth, if you start with education, I'm not saying we're great. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we can't do 10 things better or 100 things better. But we started with our heart in the right place. We wanted to make sure everybody was in the system and everybody had some kind of access, right, including reservation based on population percentages back in 1921. So I think that is the fundamental distinction. And I've said this before that, you know, now we're finding out six or seven or eight years later that the Gujarat model at best uh, hid a lot of uh, limitations and at worst was a kind of a, a facade. And the Tamil Nadu model, even after seven years of relative mismanagement, still holds strong because the foundations are so good and there's something to be learned for the rest of the country from it.
0: So, you know, I just wanted your perspective. The corollary to that question was that in in the popular imagination, largely because of the way the media reports uh, on Tamil Nadu, there's never been that much of serious conversation about the economic model. The focus was always on the freebies, you know quote unquote, Uh, everyone looked at it as competitive freebies of the DMK and the AI DMK. So one, what is your, you know, and typically I've seen now with this government, uh, there's a greater acceptance even amongst the corporates and about the mainstream media, accepting that the welfare state is very important. But up until the UPA, there used to be so much of resistance, you know, it was always called the dole or charity, et cetera, et cetera. So one is your perspective on the freebies. And two, on this movement in the country now to wrap up the state's involvement in all these things we're talking about and just do direct uh, cash transfers, you know. So your perspective on both these things.
1: So let me just talk a little bit about the notion of freebies. As I've said many times before, one man's freebie is another man's essential social spending. How do you define what is populist? How do you define what is a freebie? Uh, You know, the prime minister has been giving away all kinds of things. I think last year, uh, the statistics show this year, it shows 5.25 lakh crores of payments to poor people from the, the union government. This is not just a huge transfer, it is intruding into the rights of the states, right? So, you know, the, the, the gap between the professed uh, principles or, or philosophy and the actions couldn't be more wide than in the union government today. So they reduce all taxation powers from the state. They go from under 10% uh, um, cess and surcharge to 23%, 24% cess and surcharge, surcharge. They reduce greatly the direct taxation of income tax on corporates and individuals. And they greatly ramp up indirect taxation, which is inherently regressive. And then they take this money and they do as much circumvention. Right? Uh, in Tamil Nadu today, we get less uh, from the center as our share of central taxes than we get in schemes and grants. And that's after being such a rich state that we get relatively few schemes and grants compared to other states. So you can imagine in places like UP, which is a BJP-run state for that matter, the share of schemes and grants from the union will be 2x the share of... You have just emasculated the government. You have taken away the uh, ability to decide how to spend their money for their people. And the irony of this is the more they do, the the more you realize that it's not achievable. Right? You've seen all the CAG reports and other reports where they talk about Swachh Bharat funds being spent to create toilets, but there's no running water because the union government cannot stay here and keep supplying water. That's a municipality's problem. You have Krish Kalyan funds being sent and returned unused because they're only intended for whitewashing or painting of schools. But many of the schools in let's say the poorer districts of Bihar are thatch schools. They cannot whitewash or paint thatch. So, you know, when you try to regulate a one size fits all, you know, one nation, one exiting in uh, union government, incidentally, the direct antithesis of everything, uh, uh, you know, Honorable Chief Minister Modi said when he was Chief Minister is what he does when he's uh, now the Honorable Prime Minister. So you leave that aside. Let's go back to freebies, so-called freebies. I'll give you a range of freebies, so-called freebies, and you tell me which is good and which is bad. We supply free food to children at school. Is that a good freebie or a bad freebie? I would say it's essential spending to develop nutrition for kids. We give costless laptops to college students and bicycles to school students and uh, you know uh, hostel accommodation to uh, adivraver and, and tribal students is that a good freebie or a bad freebie we give uh, gold and uh, uh, for gold for weddings to prevent people borrowing uh, and getting into a vicious cycle of debt at usurious rates of street interest because access to unsecured credit is almost non existent at the low levels of india still and we give special kits for every expectant mother that has about, I don't know, a few thousand rupees worth of stuff, including you know, nutrition and lactation material. And this. Is that a good freebie or a bad freebie? Right? We give so many things that we see as keeping the level of society up to a certain uh, platform. We provide free insurance. Is that a good freebie or bad? Now, of course, there are many, many freebies that I would consider bad freebies, right? Uh, we give uh, uh, so-called 25,000 rupees a person for a subsidy for a scooter for 1 lakh uh, people. You have a public uh, transport system that's running 14 crores of loss a day that cannot be controlled and maintained, that is losing people by the dozen. You already have 2.64 crore two-wheelers in Tamil Nadu. You don't have the parking or the roads or the infrastructure. You're increasing all of the congestion, bottlenecks, environmental problems. How crazy do you have to be to go and give this kind of money so, you know, uh, programs can be good, bad. I mean, the, for example, the, the former chief minister had a program where she would give free goats and free cows. It turned out the goat program was quite useful because there's, you know, multiple ways you can get goats in and, you know, goats were uh, easy to feed and maintain and you didn't worry about the strain and the, you know, interbreeding and all this stuff. But cows were very, very difficult to do and then you had to insist on importing cows from out of state because otherwise you're creating artificial market within the state. Then you say, if I import from out-of-state, who's going to call, verify the quality? Then you set up a model that a veterinary surgeon has to take the beneficiary to a market in Andhra, check the cow's milking for three days, check that it meets the criteria, that, the, the threshold, and then bring it. Which market is going to allow you to test a cow for three days? Doesn't happen. So there are schemes that are designed badly. Uh, my personal opinion, why should you give mixers and grinders and stuff like that, right? I mean, you can go down the street and buy packets of uh, idli, batter or dosa batter for five rupees and eight rupees, you know, and and the joke of all jokes. Our opponents said they were going to give free washing machines to uh, every household. Now, maybe even they were going to be able to supply power for But most of these houses don't have running water. How can you run an automated washing machine without a pipe that has continuous water that can be drawn in the cycle? It was ridiculous. So I'm not defending all so-called free of cost or or all so-called gimmicks. It's not a question of freebie or not freebie. It's conscious decision, conscious action with good data. At least my philosophy and my outcome match. Then you criticize me, I have no problem. But 95% of the time in our country, everybody pays attention to your words. Nobody pays attention to the outcome. And that's the biggest gap. It's not the capitalism to socialism gap. It's the gap between intent or stated intent and outcome
0: right so uh, now now let me come back to my original question which was a long while back uh, which is that you know the the whole uh, sort of controversy around the farm law bills uh, very pithily what do you think are the lessons to take from that you know what what should we learn from this whole thing
1: Uh, Listen, I'm a state legislator and a finance minister. I'm neither the agriculture minister nor a, a central legislator. So I'll just say one thing. I will just say that most of us learn that democracy involves first having a conversation, first having a debate, then going to a committee, then getting their insights, then enacting a law. It's kind of crazy that we enact a law, then we start getting people's blowback. And then we find one year later, the law is repealed. It, it, it's like everything is done in reverse. I'll go, I'll go a slightly different perspective. The whole notion of uh, kind of uh, having a parliament, having a debate is that the voices of multiple people give you the best case outcome for the country. If you assume that everybody's patriotic, if you assume that everybody comes with the right intent, then surely this model of democracy says that everybody's input, then we find what is the right fit and then we take it and, and get it out. The more you do this kind of, uh, you know, uh, one, one data point, one man, one decision that applies to a billion, 400 million people, I think even if it had passed and stayed, you would have gotten much poorer outcomes than you expected. What happened to GST? GST had all this promise. It was going to raise the revenues. It was going to simplify everybody's life. It was going to have this, like, beautiful system. Hundreds of modifications later, we are yet to realize even half the dream. And whatever we feared were the consequences in terms of lack of independence, lack of uh, decision you know, at the States, lack of flexibility. Uh, we have seen that in, in, in spades. And now the Union uh, Finance Minister has set up a, a kind of couple of uh, subcommittees, uh, you know, uh, working groups, uh, one a standing committee in which he has graciously nominated me. And we're going to start from the basics, right? Where's the data? How do we track it? Who gets to use it? How can we enforce these things? So I think uh, very often we find decisions being taken for shock value or face value or for projecting the image of some, you know, uh, all-knowing, all-seeing leader. And such a leader doesn't exist in the real world, as you know, right? That's why democracy has elections every every so often and requires hundreds of legislators to be uh, elected, not, uh, you know, not just uh, one person.
0: Right. Right. So, uh, you know, you just mentioned about the GST. While these are different examples, at the heart of it, you've been speaking quite uh, uh, sort of emphatically about this kind of breakdown in the whole uh, federalism, you know, which underpins our democracy. So can you help us understand that for audiences who are hearing you the first time? Um, well, it's, what
1: yeah, is it's, it's really a question of what is an optimal model for managing the complexity and the huge amount of responsibility we have as elected governments, right? Uh, if you take a state like Tamil Nadu, 80 million people is equal to the population of Turkey, roughly. If you take a, a state like Uttar Pradesh, it's by itself, it's one of the top four or five countries in the world. So as I think the Economist magazine once put it, India is a continent masquerading as a country. So you have this system where you have enormous complexity and then you have enormous diversity. If you take any measure per capita income, access to doctors, infant mortality, uh, percentage of girls in school below the age of 13, the best to worst is not 1 is to 2, is not 1 is to 5. In some cases, 1 is to 8, 1 is to 10. So clearly, the notion that one size fits all, I mean, I gave this example in a paper, I don't know, three, four years back, so it's a bit dated, but three, four years ago, the average citizen in Tamil Nadu is 31 years old, uh, a woman, there's more than 50% women, at least on the voter rolls, uh, has a per capita income north of two lakhs and has education of high school graduate, right? And uh, that woman has a total fertility rate of something like 1.6 children in her lifetime. We are below replacement population. The average citizen of Bihar is a 19-year-old male, elementary school dropout, uh, has probably a per capita income of 40-something thousand. Total fertility rate is north of 3, some 3.5 or 3.7, it may have come down a bit now. So this is how disparate the country is. The minute you start thinking that you can do one nation, one X, one nation, one policy, one nation, one tax, one nation, one administration, one nation, one, you know, uh, father exactly knows now best. Now
0: this idea, one nation, one election.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, and uh, let me be very clear. One nation, one election is not clear to me. will yield the results that the BJP and the prime minister think it will. Because when people's lives are affected, they are very clear thinking. It's only because they think Delhi is so far away that they vote based on image and all that. The, after the 2017 UP election, name me one state election in which the BJP and its allies have done a sweeping victory. So it's not as if people are that mesmerized. Let's be very clear. It's not as if everybody has lost uh, rationality and said, I don't care if it's my interest or not. Uh, you know, the new uh, father of the nation will uh, will take care of me. It's not like that. None of the statistics show that. So I think... That uh, uh, the the complexity of administering public policy, and the diversity of the need of across different. I'm not even sure there's one policy that works across all of Tamil Nadu. Let me let me not use my words. Let me use the words of a, a, a member of our Legislative Assembly, uh, Mrs. Vanati Srinivasan, who's the head of the BJP Women's Meeting. In the assembly, she made a point in the recent budget debate. She said, you're going to have different training programs and different cluster incentive schemes and all that. You can't use the same scheme across all of Tamil Nadu. Coimbatore has a different set of industries. Madurai has a different set of industries. Tutukorun has a different set of industries. So you must customize the cluster incentives and you must customize the training programs district by district, area by area. If that's true within Tamil Nadu, surely that matches also what should be done from Delhi. In fact, let me forget all of this. The single greatest champion of the notion that administration really resides in states in the last 25 years has been the Honorable Prime Minister when he was Chief Minister of uh, Gujarat. I mean, I've, I've shown this in many places. If you want, I'll send you all of his statements about GST, about Aadha, about states' rights, about revenue sharing. All of them were exactly what we are saying now except his seat has changed, so his views have changed. You know, the whole adage in politics, where I stand depends on where I sit. So that, that's really the, the easiest way to show why it's not a uh, effective or acti- uh, you know, activatable model to produce good results.
0: So, you know, the, the whole perception uh, around the economy has become so partisan that it's really difficult to actually, for a layperson to even understand where the country is. So what's your take on it? You know, so there are two paths to this and I want to first address uh, how the central government responded to the COVID crisis. You know, there was a lot of advice that they should put money into people's hands, print money if necessary, and they didn't go that route. Uh, So, you know, you have critics like Ratan Roy, Arvind Subramaniam, Raghuram Rajan, Mr. Ram, Yashwan Singh, you know, a, a whole array of very, very reputed economists who say that the government has done terribly you know, uh, Ratin has been saying that the economy is contracting. It's a very profit-led recovery uh, that actually, you know, employment is low. Um, uh, you know, even corporate investment is low. Uh, the rural economy is in a mess. Urban economy is in a mess. So he says it's a contracted economy and a very elite recovery uh, and that the government's done badly. The government, on the other hand, uh, feels that it has done very well because, GDP figures are up, employment figures are up, manufacturing is good. They've done a lot of big ticket reforms. They focused on infrastructure, investment, uh, you know, so that's their claim. What what do you think, you know, how how did their response to COVID in your books go?
1: Let me just step back a little. Let's, Let's go back to before COVID, right? Any economy, the government has only a limited role, a crucial but limited role. It's not infinite. And some variables are out of your control. There are external variables. We are all integrated into the global economy. And what happens in a global financial crisis or a market crunch or flow of capital is not in your control to a large extent. But there are a lot of things that are in your control. And primarily, we call that fiscal policy, right? Because the monetary policy ideally is a bit independent of you and the Reserve Bank or the Federal Bank takes care of that. And you take care of the fiscal policy. Now, the fiscal policy of this government had already been An unprecedentedly one sided fiscal policy. What do I mean by that? Uh, The ratio of indirect to direct tax revenues, right? In in most OECD countries, and for good uh, fairness, they say 40% indirect, 60% direct. Direct because it's progressive. I know who I'm taking from. I know who earns how much. I know what the rate can be. And so I take 35% from really rich people and 28% from less, and then so on and so on and so forth. Not just the total volume, but the rate at which I tax, right? And then indirect taxes, by their very nature, are regressive because it's a point of sale tax. You don't know who uses how much. And certainly poor and middle class people spend more of their wealth or their income on taxable goods and services than uh, rich people. Right? I mean, I have many, many cars, uh, but there's no way I spend more than 50,000 rupees a a month in petrol or diesel across all my cars because I can only be in one car at one time. Or, you know, my wife can be in another and so forth. But as a percentage of my income, it's irrelevant. So if the taxation rate on that is 40%, it really is 40% of some irrelevant number of my income uh, or, or well. And if you take a, a person who only makes about 50,000 rupees a month, then probably they spend between five and 7,000 rupees on, and, uh, on petrol. So between 10 and 15% of their income for their bike. And uh, taxing that at 40% gives them an effective tax rate between 6 and 10% of their total income. That's why it's regressive. So... Uh, if you look at the, uh, what happened after 2014, after the UPA went and the NDA came, the rate, I mean, the total contribution of direct taxation has been keeping on dropping steadily and went from something like 55% in uh, Dr. six time to something like 43 or 44% now. That's huge, right? It's about a 200-something lakh crore uh, revenue. So 10% of that is 20, 22, 25 lakh crores. That's the entire GSDP of Tamil Nadu has shifted. From uh, direct taxation to indirect taxation. So that's the first problem. Second problem is uh, things like demonetization were self inflicted disasters of unimaginable uh, you know, uh, consequences and long term uh, problems. Now we have a situation where the global uh, cash flow and liquidity is huge. But in our own country, because of a series of mismanagement and stripping of assets and stripping of performance, and so forth. All these public sector enterprises are on their knees. They have been made into effectively distressed entities with very low cash balances, very low performance. Now for the government to say, A, that I will be Nirba. I mean, what we need now is investment in spades. There's so much capital looking for a anti-China diversification or ex-China diversification. We should be pulling this in by the tens of billions. All we have seen is investments into... Uh, GEO and places like that. We haven't seen you know, into real kind of infrastructure funds at the state level or at the, you know, at the corporate level. And so we have taken exactly anti-approach to where we should be now, where we should be welcoming global capital, especially if it's into greenfield or brown field or hard asset uh, investment. And on the flip side, uh, the union government announces this massive pipeline of asset monetization. Why would I? If I'm a seller, I want to keep the supply-demand in my favor. Why would I apply the uh, uh, announce that I have this much supply? Surely that drives down the price. I mean, if, if I'm trying to sell a uh, thousand shares, I don't go and say I want to sell ten thousand more after it. Right? It just changes the dynamic of supply and demand in the market. And so, you know, this combination of uh, bad strategy, uh, bad philosophy about Atmanirbhar, and bad valuations. My worry about this whole asset monetization is you end up doing what effectively amounts to crony capitalism. You end up with the selected few taking over 60, 70 year developed assets for a song. And that fear is exacerbated by the nature of anonymous electoral bonds. Well, it's anonymous to you and me, it's not anonymous to the government or the income tax department. So it's very easy to set up a quid pro quo that we don't know about, but you know, somebody else. I'd be hard-pressed to find a democracy where such kind of uh, non-transparent intellectual bonds are allowed. I, again, I say, you cannot separate money and politics in any democracy. I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend there's such a thing as pure as the driven snow. I'm saying, if you uh, sow the seeds of your own destruction by proving that there is no institutional control, that there is no law, that there is only opinion, and there is only a one power force, then investors start to think, ah. This is not a sustainable model. This is going to collapse sooner or later. Why should I go put my capital at risk? So I, I, you know, I agree with uh, uh, Professor Roy. Let me go the other way. The trade-off between giving money into the hands of people and doing it in investment and all that is just simple, two things. One, had you not already been in a demand recession for the, probably the first time since independence, maybe it was better to do investment infrastructure and use that to provide jobs. All, but you are already in a demand recession, all the consequences accumulated from demonetization on And two, if you try to invest in hard assets and use that as a stimulus, you know what the building time of any project is, especially when people are locked down. It'll take me three years or five years. I mean, most projects, most capital projects were already shut down because all the, uh, the, the transient workers and the out-of-state workers had already gone home and then, you know many projects were frozen for months at a time. How do you get spending up that rapidly? You give it in the hands of people who are short food or oil or medicine or clothes or vegetables, they will go and buy it immediately. So under the circumstances we were at, I'm 100% in the camp of Raghuram Raj, or you know, Rathendra Raya and, Roy, Rath and Subram, you know, all of these, of course, we are so closely uh, aligned through the council and all that. So maybe it's not surprising, but my explanation is very clear. So-
0: Uh, You know, so you talked about the fact that uh, all the mistakes that they made pre-COVID, you know, and the GDP had dropped, the data wasn't reliable, there were a lot of arguments, there was a 40-year low in uh, employment rates, etc. The question I was asking is now, you know, that, uh, say, the U.S., which pumped money into the economy, is uh, seeing now a lot of inflationary fears. uh, And the Indian government, when you quote, say, Mr. K. Subramaniam or Sanjeev Sanyal or Nirmala Sitaraman, uh, you know, they're saying that we did a good job because we kept it in control uh, and the economy is looking quite robust. Of course, it's from the contracted state. But I was just saying that, you know, people wanted to understand this in a non-partisan way. um, What do you think they've done right? Uh,
1: I I just say two or three things. I say uh, between the announced stimulus and the executed stimulus is a huge gap. You know, at the end of the day, they have to give a revised estimate when they come for the budget. You should see all the announcements they made about 10% of GDP, which all the banks assessed at 1% of GDP. Let me make an example. They have announced a phenomenal set of schemes for MSME and, uh, you know, relief. And the RBI has given some relaxation in the finance ministry. Uh, when I chaired the state-level bankers committee meeting, it was very clear that neither the industrialists knew about all these benefits that they could avail. I'm talking about yeah. micro, small, medium, ed. Nor did the bank managers of the branches in every village and district understand what was offered. Yeah. Right? So even the, the awareness of the bankers was not good enough. How will they transmit that to the, to the people? So, you know, we stepped up and we said two, three things. One, we said our RBI Chennai to conduct a training program for all these bankers about what is it that the union government and the RBI offers. Then two, that these guys and the government would coming out together would run newspaper ads and events where we we'll would bring people together and explain that these are all the schemes out there and three that the government of Tamil Nadu would set up its own credit guarantee to supplement the unit credit guarantee and so forth, so that we could get the full advantage of the scheme. So this is my point. Having intent is good. Executing is a lot harder. And executing is not working. You can't sit in one room and make a design and say, you know, like the old Star Trek uh, Captain Kirk, make it so, Scotty. It doesn't become so. You actually have to get on the ground and do some work. And so uh, I would say that though they announced a lot of things, they didn't execute on that, number one. Number two, if you look at who is uh, thriving or surviving and who is losing, I still say it is lopsided. All crises exacerbate inequality, bar none. And we're seeing that in every way, from you know people who lived in a big house suffered less during the lockdown mentally and physically than people who lived in a small house. So... This is also true of industries and, and uh, enterprises and MSME. And the real problem with us is that MSME is the biggest job creator and employs probably two-thirds or more because most of them are in the informal economy. Very few of our population is in the formal economy. So from that perspective, I would say uh, <laughs> I don't want to uh, count my chickens before they hatch. I'm not sure that our inflation is that much better. Right? Let's see what the revised numbers look like. And so, you know, the GDP growth and all that, I mean, I don't know uh, K Subramanian personally, but I've had some interactions with Sanjeev Sanyal in the past, Uh, you know, Sanjeev is not an unqualified person, but uh, I wouldn't make predictions or bet on the markets based on what anybody, any economist predicts what the uh, inflation is going to be or not going to be. Right.
0: Right. And uh, so to come back to that experience on ground that if there was the kind of uh, distress that, you know, many economists are trying to uh, flag, you know, whether in terms of employment, one does see it anecdotally. There was this story just now in Banas where for 600 jobs, there was just, you know, that the, the sheer desperation of the number of thousands of applications for that. So anecdotally, you get that, you know, Mahesh Vyas has been flagging the unemployment crisis for a long time. But uh, just maybe it's because we are just coming out of COVID. There is an uptick right now. Uh, but what I was trying to say is that on ground, barring the farmer protest, which has been very protected, one hasn't been seeing um, you know, a kind of public outcry uh, at the scale that one would imagine if there was this amount of distress that many economists are trying to flag. If I say
1: that I believe there's a lot of distress, and you say, why isn't it out on the streets? I say that I'll just give you an incident. Right, uh, in before the 2019 elections and uh, in the Lok Sabha elections in Tamil Nadu, uh, I am also the founding uh, secretary of the IT wing for the DMK. My leader, the Chief Minister, gave me that responsibility. So we do a lot of surveys and polls, and you know, pre-election, post-election. Why did things work out the way they worked out? We had lost the 16 elections by one percent of the vote. So I did all the math, and I said to my boss, I said though we lost the last election by 1%, my instinct is that we'll win this election by about 8%. And if we do not win this election by 8%, that means that they have succeeded in making this election about our character, our value system, even though we have not been in power for uh, several years. And so their propaganda machine has achieved enormous outcomes. And so, you know, uh, uh, rather than a referendum of their performance, demonetization of GST of a shrunken economy, of a demand recession. Um, And I said, if we don't win by 8%, I'm not even talking about whether we'll win or not. If we don't win by 8%, that means that they have succeeded in making the election about us. Uh, When the results came, it turned out that we won by 22.6%. So I overestimated their vote by about 7%, and I underestimated our vote by 7%. I mean, there was a massive swing between 16 and 19. And when I'd done all the analysis within 24, 36 hours, I went and saw my leader and I told him, if we had not won with 8%, I said the election was about us and not about them. At 22.6%, I say the election was only about them and it was not about us. The people were just so keen to get them out. We see who came to the booth. So there was a, a huge amount of anger. Now, the point I'm trying to make is it was not obvious on the ground. It was not obvious in the press. I don't think anybody thought we were going to lose. But nobody saw a 22.6% margin coming. So just because you don't see in the otherwise compromised media, I mean, look, look at the farmers' protests. How powerful and how large were there, and what percentage of that was shown across the country? for, for if, if I was to take mainstream media as the basis, there was no farm protest in the last six months. But on the ground, it was huge. So you know, uh, too little of our country is on social media. Too little of our country is on uh, TV channels, and I wouldn't take. Uh, what you see on social media and what you see in, in, uh, in TV channels as indicative of what is happening on the ground. Right.
0: right. So two, two sort of last chunks of questions. Uh, you know, one more uh, area where the government claims to have done well is on the uh, bankruptcy and insolvency code. Uh, it's also on the, you know, on, on the RERA and on uh, sort of sorting out the whole real estate sector. And third is on the technology stack, you know, the India stack of digitizing, of bringing more people into the formal economy. How would you rate them on all these three things? Yeah,
1: I think the words have far exceeded the outcomes. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't studied it in enough detail to tell uh, the exact quantity, but I can say on the ground in Tamil Nadu, we are not seeing huge uh, impacts of these. I come back to the same thing. Too much of our society talks about what is your philosophy, what is your intent, are you Hindutva, are you socialist, are you Dravidian, are you, you know, uh, secular, are you not. Too little of our time is spent on what did you achieve based on your philosophy, your policy and your standing, your position. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you can show me a model that produces better results on my ambition of equitable growth, which is the job the chief minister gives me, then I'm happy to rethink whether that model is superior to my model. But when we just keep talking and say, I have this intent, I will do that scheme. Just look at budgeting. When we have the budget in February or March in every state, there's a huge amount of debate. What have you allocated to this sector? What have you done to that? Why not more for agriculture? Why not more for urban infrastructure, et etc.? Et huge debate. 12 months later, when the next year's budget is presented as a kind of afterthought, they uh, state what the revised estimate for the ongoing year is. And they say, uh, this was our intent and this is our revised estimate. Maybe people pay 20% attention to that and 75% attention to the next year's budget and a huge debate and what is your philosophy and what do you think. And they also say two years ago, the year that finished uh, you know, 12 months ago, started 24 months ago. Here's the final account for that, which is a difference from the revised estimate. And increasingly, if you look, all these numbers are changing by 20, 30, 40%. It's just like random estimates almost. How many people pay uh, any attention to the outcome from two years ago? You said you're going to spend X on agriculture. How much did you actually spend? You said you're going to spend X or Y on education. How much did you actually spend? How many programs were actually implemented? How many people actually got there? So by the time the final account comes, it's not even an afterthought. It's some kind of bookkeeping entry. With the short so, point being sorry. Uh, so, 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 none of these numbers mean anything. What, what did the union government do last year? Let's, let's remember this. When they said we're going to spend 10% of the GDP as a stimulus and they didn't have 10% to spend and they spent only 1%, what did they do? All the money they had taken as loans off balance sheet in the Food Corporation of India and other entities, they suddenly brought those onto the books of the government and say, see, my deficit is bigger than it is. Therefore, I must have spent it as stimulus. All they did was shift the loan from the Food Corporation of India's book onto the Government of India's book and call that effectively a, a relief spending right? of some one and a half or two lakh crores. This is just bookkeeping. It doesn't provide any relief to anybody if the, if the loan is at Food Corporation of India or in the Government of India. So my point is that we are a society that spends a lot of time talking about intent, talking about political philosophy, and almost no time talking about outcomes. Outcomes tell me, and if the, if this union government or any union government can show me outcomes that are superior to others' track record or my design or my outcome, I am willing to recognize and accept that that may be a better model. But so far, I've not seen the data. What does it matter what your intent was? Show me the outcome. Show me
0: the money. Right? Today, let's just end with uh, one question which will circle back to the beginning, which was that, you know, in the parliament right now, there's a demand for MSP across crops. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? And secondly, a lot of the conversation we've had uh, was predicated on the fact that, you know, I was saying the debate even around economy is so polarized, largely because there isn't data that everyone agrees on anymore, you know. So could you just address both of those very, very quickly and we'll yeah. end there? So I'll address the first
1: one very quickly as an ancestral farmer and somebody who's even now engaged in farming. uh, MSP is not the be all and end all. I understand the intent behind MSP. But really, uh, uh, unless the MSP varies with the input costs, it is not going to guarantee what we want is to ensure that farmers can make a living out of farming. That's really the ambition. You have to go one step back. And if you have to do that, uh, there are a lot of complexities, but there are also a lot of sophisticated ways you can do that. Uh, MSP may be an intermediate step. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to take a position on it, but I'm just saying MSP itself is less than ideal. It cannot guarantee the outcomes that we want, which is that farming should be a, a livable and profit-making profession for the small farmers, for the independent farmers. Now, going to data. Right? it's one thing to be data centric as my government, my chief minister our, our our approach is. It's another thing to at least understand that without data you're kind of shooting in the dark. It's something else altogether as this uh, union government has done, which is to destroy the data gathering mechanisms altogether and assume that you know uh, unreported data is the solution to uh, not having great outcomes economically right so a lot of the surveys, a lot of the reporting. Either the data is unreliable or it doesn't get collected at all. We'll go the other extreme. I made a request to the Honorable Union Finance Minister and I said, you have just done this first time in many years, cut in excise, central excise on petrol and diesel, 5 and 10. Some states matched. Other states like us matched involuntarily. So you have this wonderful data set. That if you were to collect it, look at it from, you know, all the states and the union's data from every oil marketing company and see what did this kind of reduction in tax do? Where where did you see the demand go up? Where did you see consumption go up? Did you see second order effects? Was there a difference between places where the states also cut taxes and other states that did not? Was there a greater delta or not? We learned. I mean, we are dealing with an incredibly complex system. This kind of data can enhance our understanding and increase the likelihood that we can make good policy. We need a federal data sharing compact. Much of the data that could be useful to us, other data or income tax data or even vaccine data, though the union government maintains the core granular data, we as states don't have access to it. And so we need to have this debate. And I mentioned that as well in the, in the union finance minister's meeting. So data is the basis for Understanding and policymaking needs to be a, a kind of common philosophy that all of us have. Unfortunately, I feel like the union government the last you know, seven years has been going the opposite of that.
0: Thank you very much. We'll just leave these as teasers. It's wonderful to see where Tamil Nadu is. I hope this conversation puts the Tamil Nadu model of growth you know, with that focus on equitable growth Uh, on more people's uh, consciousness. And thank you very, very much for taking the time out. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.